is freedom a real reality for young people in this country is freedom a reality for women in this country who every single day the basic right to life and safety is stripped away from them is freedom a real reality for black people i couldn't accept those injustices that young black women are faced with in this country on the daily i couldn't accept those and i couldn't normalize those i couldn't act as if things were normal my hatred for injustice always became a um a driving force and a um source of source of passion and um source of determination to always keep going and is what really brought me to this path that I've taken yeah. and eventually it became a conversation an african conversation where you had women in ghana tweeting women in nigeria tweeting women in kenya tweeting saying how far as africa have we gone with our decolonization um process Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Leaders Podcast. I'm your host Mpomonso, and our goal and mission with the show is to introduce you to stories of young people across the globe who we believe are the next generation of thought leaders. Right? This episode's guest, Zuleika Patel, is a young and woke South African activist. She became a symbol when she made the headlines four years ago during the time in which she was fighting her school's anti-Afro hair policy at the Pretoria. a girls high school where she said the famous quote asking me to erase my hair is like asking me to erase my blackness today zuleka is known as a prominent vocal opponent against all forms of discrimination and violence within south africa her tenacity and ability to articulate a thought process calls for deep respect and acknowledgement amongst the youth at just the age of 18 she's been featured on various platforms including the SABC news CNN eyewitness news and a TED talk where she actually delves into some of the lessons into how do we disrupt our own spaces furthermore in 2016 she was named by the well-known BBC as the top 100 women's list of the world's leading female voices think of the next bell hooks or the upcoming Charlotte McClake or perhaps even Aveo Nonza Mombata think Zuleka Patel without any further ado Zuleka thank you so much for joining us here at the Leaders podcast Thank you so much for having me. Um I just think um let me just correct one um first thing the quote is actually asking me to change my hair is asking me to erase my blackness. Oh, okay. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much Leka. Now and I I've not had the time to to really have and talk to you and I guess this is the first time. And I was really interested in preparation for this really thinking about from a content specific what has the lockdown meant for zuleka uh what has zuleka been up to um since the lockdown what have you been doing to keep yourself active um during the lockdown i mean i've um i've kept positive like i've tried to keep positive and i've stayed vocal um against the injustices which um women children and black people still continue to face throughout this um period and so i've been quite vocal on um xenophobia during this time gbv as well as um as well as corruption in the country mm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, to- talking about, about being vo- vocal, um, Zulek, I want us to go back to the source of all of this and really take a quick trip down memory lane back in 2016 at the time. At the age of 13, I believe, when you started to challenge this institutional um, um, racism at the Pretoria Girls High School, did you ever think at the time that it would snowball into such a massive movement that it is today? You know, at the time, at the time when um, when we started the movement, myself and um, the other black girls at the time when we started the movement, we knew at the time that this is what children in this country have been waiting for. These, this movement is meant is going to grow in the next coming years. You know, it's not something that has a start and an end. It's going to continue to grow and more and more people are going to continue to rise up and stand up against the injustices in the education system. And so at the time, we really didn't think that it would get global attention, but we were still determined and we knew that young people's voices are powerful. And especially in the current era that we live in, we knew that we knew that this would um, bring change. And so we were very determined and we knew the power that our voices had. Mm-hmm. And then I'm generally interested at the time in which you are 13 years old, what were some of your internal conversations, right? What were some of the stuff that really sparked the light within you and at a very young age commit to such a just cause? Were there, was there a certain influence from family that really was like Zuleika, you could do it? Or was it just something you felt the need to commit to? Well, you know, um, with that, I really have to answer you with one <laughs> of my favorite quotes by Angela Davis, where she actually says, I am no longer accepting what I cannot change, but I am changing what I cannot accept. And it was those injustices that I could not accept. I just couldn't. I couldn't accept those injustices that young black women are faced with in this country on the daily. I couldn't accept those and I couldn't normalize those. I couldn't act as if things were normal. And I just wasn't accepting of those injustices. So I knew that I had to say something and that always my hatred for injustice always became a um a driving force and a um source of source of passion and um source of determination to always keep going and is what really brought me to this path that i've taken and also just um just you know the whole born free narrative and i'm sure (laughs) and i'm sure you've heard me on a number of times (laughs) on a number of platforms i absolutely there's nothing more that there's nothing more that I hate than that term, born free. And one of the things that also really like pushed me to want to take this path is me truly questioning, is freedom a real reality for young people in this country? Is freedom a reality for women in this country who every single day the basic right to life and safety is stripped away from them? Is freedom a real reality for black people? Because I've I've always been I've always been under the belief that we yeah. live in an era where apartheid has been modified and privatized. And that is why you have things such as institutionalized racism, which is why the, the public health public health isn't um isn't at the 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 ranking of private health care which is why um black people still remain the face of poverty in a country which is theirs you know and so really just questioning the whole idea of is 
freedom a real reality in this era, you know? Mm. I mean, like I said, TED Talk, political emancipation means nothing without mental emancipation. And so just the whole thing of seeing how mentally enslaved we are just really pushed me to want to take on this part that I've taken on. Mm-hmm. Which, I, which I think is, is very commendable, uh, um, 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 Zuleika. But, but also, I'm, I'm trying to also think that at the time, for sure, at the age of 13, I was not thinking like that. Um, so so <laughs> I think I hear that, uh, that at a very young age, we had that. Because I think for me, even, I remember seeing some of the visuals of you, and I was like, how do young people have the ability to shake tables at a very young age? And I think through that, I think it was also vessels that we really changed through you just being you authentically at the time. Um, and, I, and I think one of the things while you're talking is that I think about how, how many young people actually do the work that they do, not for the fame, but because they authentically want to do it. And I think your answer really encapsulates that. At the time, it was just about this is a just cause, this is something I want to commit to. And you never looked back. And I think it's quite commendable. In one of the many interviews that you did at the time, Zuleka, you stated that we wanted to transform the education system into something that is truly Afrocentric. Um, and yeah. I found that interesting and, and quite insightful, but also found myself thinking about what, what does an Afrocentric education system look like? And, and what do you think are some of the actionable steps that we could take towards developing an Afrocentric education system? You know, with the education system, when um, we said that at the time, we wanted to rid the education system of the racist policies, such as every school in this country has a hair policy that works against the majority of this country, you know? Mm. Hair policies work against African hair. Mm. And criminalize African hair. And so what we say is that we want a complete eradication of hair policies in all public schools because the government has control of all public schools Mm. and there can be no policy without discrimination. Already having a policy on its own makes room for discrimination because who gets to sit and chair how people should wear their hair how people should express themselves because hair is identity and how people should should express themselves in their identity. Who gets to chair that and make those decisions? Who? Is it a white woman that gets to say, oh no, the majority of this country, their hair is unruly and yeah. this is how you should wear your hair, yeah. you know? Yeah. Having a policy in its own makes room for discrimination. Mm-hmm. Secondly, secondly, further, what we wanted, what we meant when we said Afrocentric education was we want to see representation within schools, especially, especially in your former, your former white public schools, which remain heavily colonized, yeah. Yeah. whereby in majority of these schools, you'll have like under 10 black teachers and you ask yourself in a country where we have such a high unemployment rate which affects the majority of this country who we've seen young people graduate and young black people are sitting at home with their degrees Mm. why aren't they being employed into these institutions you know because you have teachers from a previous area who are mainly the ones that do the racist indoctrination and are the ones that terrorize children in these schools you know and Another thing we said was life orientation. 
Life orientation is a subject that needs to be radically transformed in this country for us to ever move forward and for education to ever, for the education system in this country to those who are critical thinkers and not just people who accept everything the government says, you know? Because what I've said, and I've said this unapologetically and openly and blatantly that Life orientation right now is the most useless subject because what does it do? It doesn't prepare you for the real life world. Yeah. The real life world whereby you face injustices, racial injustices, gender injustices, you know? It doesn't prepare you for that. Number one, firstly, it doesn't, it doesn't give context into racial discrimination in the country. And we want that subject to give context into racial discrimination in the country and open up conversations, open up uncomfortable conversations that we should be having in this country about our racial history and how it continues to affect us and every aspect of the way this country operates economically, socially, and politically. Mm -hmm. And also in terms of gender, in terms of gender, you can't tell me that the subject is effective and yeah. it only gives you a two-pager of, of, of gender discrimination and domestic violence and gender-based violence in a country whereby women live in constant fear, where femicide has been normalized, and every single day, every hour, every minute, women are dying at the hands of men, and you have you you're not opening up those conversations for young people to talk about in schools, you know. And so, when we said decolonize the education system, we want to recreate an Afrocentric education. We meant that as much as we are ready to disrupt, disrupt the system, this colonized system, because one thing I've always said is that the system isn't broken. It doesn't have cracks in it. Yeah. It's not like we're saying that the system is broken. The system was built that way. It was built off of exclusion. It was built off of excluding the majority of this country. It's operating just the way it was built. So when you say it needs fixing, then you're allowing for it to continue to exist in different streams of society. Mm. What we said is we want it completely torn down. Mm. And what we want to see is the rebuilding of an education system, which will be beneficial for young people in this country. Mm. And is going to and it's going to be restructured because the inequalities in the education system are rife you you don't have to literally dig to find them yeah. they're right in front of you you can yeah. see the inequalities the fact that there's a gap between between education for a for the minority in this country and the majority quality education in this country is something that is offered to a minority class of people yeah. you know yeah. whereby um you really ask yourself to what extent has the Bantu Education Act been eradicated if black children in this country are still subjected to using pit toilets, are still subjected to overcrowded classes, are still subjected to an inferior form of education. So when we said make education Afrocentric, we meant that we want education to work for the majority in this country and to, and to provoke critical thinking you know yeah. to produce people that don't just accept and people that question people that are ready to take on to take on the real world and um and become responsible conscious citizens yeah. you know and yeah that's a that's pretty much about it is that we wanted an education system which is built by africans for africans and will work for africans because the education system in this country is heavily influenced by the western world mm. You touch on something very important and quite close to me personally. 
um, which is the idea of the ability to question, uh, the independence of thought, right? To be an independent thinker and, and constantly questions what you are, which I think is so profound. Um, and I often think about having went to certain um, high schools in South Africa, you look at the top Johannesburg high schools, much of them, you know, I don't want to name names, uh, but a lot of them you can see the institutional racism in it. Um, and I think you touch on the first point of access, right? I think having the access to, uh, for black kids into those spaces, I think is the first step to actually saying what you say, because currently right now, yeah. only if you afford, only if you're privileged enough, do you only have access to institutions like your Hilton's, your Michael Houses, your really top institutions in the country? Uh, which over time, as you said, I think builds this domino effect because over time you've got these generations of individuals which is constantly marginalized. And Talk that's what you're seeing today. Yeah. Sorry to just come in. And that's what you're seeing with the current um, COVID-19 period. Yeah. What you're seeing is that is that people are going to 10 years down the line when unemployment increases, they're going to say, oh, what have we done to increase unemployment like this? Yet it's that domino ripple effect whereby as of March, when yeah. schools first closed, there were matriculants in this country whereby they had not worked during the lockdown. Yeah. You know, they, were not, they had not worked between that period of the end of March towards the 8th of June because public schools opened on the 8th of June, right? Mm -hmm. They hadn't worked. So already they were set back. They were set back whilst your private schools were continuing because they have capacity. They yeah. have capacity and resources to continue to offer quality online learning where yeah. a child will not sit at home and really question what is going on. Where they had like, on, like you know, 24-7 quality online mm. education. And you're still seeing that now because during right now when they reclosed schools yeah. um, during this one week, during this one week, they didn't close private schools. They didn't, and that raises a question, and it really just shows you how how the how even the government knows that within the education system, their inequality is scary. Because what I took from them not closing private schools was that what that showed me was that it shows how resourced they are, how heavily yeah. resourced they are. Yeah. That they can continue because they know they're able to follow by social distancing. Mm. You can't socially distance when you're in a class of yeah. over 60 pupils. Mm. You can't do that. Yeah. They can continue to provide, you know, um, numerous sanitation spots to sanitize your hands, yeah. wash your hands. PPE, they didn't struggle with PPE. You still have schools that did not open because they didn't receive PPE, you know? Mm. And so it just shows that even currently now, a black child is set back, is set back, mm -hmm. and it's your your private schools are continuing. They're the ones whose academic year is not getting extended into 2021. They're going to complete, they're going to matriculate. Yeah. Whereby in your public schools, a black child is is already subjected to that ripple you know, effect of injustice, that poverty cycle, because already they're set back right now with the education number one. These schools weren't, weren't even in a position to efficiently function. Mm. And then what this pandemic has done is it highlighted that and further set them, set them back. So yeah. already you're trapped in that, in that domino effect and that cycle of poverty because it's black children who, who, who's even when they do have their matric certificates still can't get unemployment, yeah. still can't get employment, sorry, in this country, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I just wanted to highlight that mm. in terms of, you know, the current, the current situation that already 
mm. already it's subjected you to being trapped in that in that cycle of poverty. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I generally do agree, and I, and I think as as you think, like you you spoke about having the matric certificate, unemployment, but I also think the, the whole thing of, and hence the fees must fall, access to just tertiary education. Um, I think that's a whole another ballgame for, for, for a lot of, um, a lot of uh, black students across the country. Talk, talk to me more about the role of Twitter at the time, right? Um, I know you started the hashtag uh, Stop Racism at Pretoria Girls High School, if I'm getting it correct, which went viral, yes. appearing on national TV, radio stations. What were some of the stories and results that came out of the social movement? So, um, if I'm being truly honest, <laughs> you know, what happened was, so the, the movement, the protest started on the 26th of August, 2016, which was a Friday, and um, they continued to the 27th of august which was a saturday right and that was at a a public event that the school hosts and normally the whole of pretoria would be invited you know yeah. and so we said we'll take that opportunity to grab the public's eye of what truly happens behind these gates because this school is praised as being one of the most prestigious girls schools in the country you know yeah. and you know and at what cost does does that prestigiousness of the school come at if inequality in the school is like so rife, right? So the process continued on the 27th, which is where the notorious video of where we resisted, um, we resisted the private, private security, private security, which was tightened from the um, 26th of August, because on 26th of August, they saw what we were doing. They tightened security and when I say they tighten security, these are not adults which they tighten security on. These are young teenage girls who they hired a private security company for. That security company was armed. It was armed. And, you know, with that event, one thing that we all noticed was this event has been going on for years. Not once has security at this event ever been armed. Yeah. Armed with guns and dogs. Yeah. And this yeah. is for children. Yeah. And then um, on the 27th, when we marched, that was when that video where they threatened us with arrest. And we made the decision. We said, arrest us, arrest us, you know? Because yeah. firstly, what I said, what, I, what, I, um, what was going on in my mind at the time was, we did nothing wrong, you know? Like, we did nothing wrong. If anything, if anything, the ones that are in the wrong are the ones that called an armed bunch of security men for children. Yeah. Violence is being perpetuated by them and not by us, yeah. you know? And if, if it means that we're getting arrested, then so be it, because this cause is one that's greater than us. And there are those, this cause is for the ones that are going to walk these corridors of the school after us, you know, as they rightfully should. And there are those that are going to take on take on this movement it's only gonna grow from here and so we said arrest us and then um, immediately after after um a couple of hours after the protest we're taken into a room with these with the two heads of security whereby no one else was allowed into the room you know no one else was allowed into the room but it was us right and then they said to us listen you are violating city council codes. You and we said it's our constitutional rights as citizens who have faced injustice to protest. You know, yeah. protest is a language of resistance. Yeah. It's a constitutional right in this country, right? Mm. 
and they were like no we want you to speak to us and tell us what the problem is and we're like we've been speaking for decades now for decades for decades you chose to ignore us right and now you are going to try to intimidate us and scare us by bringing us into a room without any form of representation and you as men that are two times three times our size the heads of security security company which is on you're going to bring us into a room and technically if you analyze the situation properly it was being held hostage right and then um immediately after that we left the room and they said um on monday we're going to come and fetch expulsion letters and then that's when i was like hey, hey there's no ways there's no ways i've done nothing wrong yeah i've done nothing wrong previously i've been through expulsions for my hair i'm not going to allow this i i'm not going to allow this and so we said we said the only option is we take to social media social media is such an important in such an important critical and strong tool that um, works in our favor as young people in the 21st century. So, you know, Twitter's a good friend. We went to Twitter, (laughs) started the hashtag, hashtag Stop Racism at Pretoria High School for Girls on Sunday. Yeah, on Sunday, because we had to just compose ourselves for like a day. Then on Sunday, we started um, tweeting, you know, tweeting about our experiences coming out. And so we eventually like... um, we eventually inspired confidence in other girls to come out about their stories because these experiences, like, they span over decades, you yeah. know? They span over decades. This isn't a thing that girls were just experiencing in 2016. Mm. As of when black girls were allowed to enter the school, when the school opened its gates, mm. these experiences, whatever a black girl in, 19, in 1996 yeah. experienced, when she, as of when she entered the school, a black girl in 2016 still experienced it 20 years down the line. And so we took to Twitter. It was around 6 p.m. We started tweeting. We're like, okay, we're going to start the hashtag, hashtag stop racism at Pretoria High School for Girls. And further, what we want to highlight is that our experiences are not unique. They're not just the average girls, high girl experiences. These are experiences that every black child that's gone to a, a former, former, um, former whites only school has experienced you know and further systemic racism runs as deep as the fact that your former black black the schools that were set aside for black people remain heavily under resourced and remain remain excluded right and so we wanted to highlight the racial inequality in education so we said that this movement isn't one that is um only exclusive to the experiences of girl of girls high but we wanted to highlight what had happened over those two days so 6 p.m we started tweeting it was literally only like 18 people and then eventually like two hours into the tweeting eventually it grew to about a thousand tweets became a pretoria conversation first became a pretoria conversation where you had your boys schools coming out your saint mary's your um different schools in pretoria then eventually at like around 9 p.m it became a Gauteng conversation, wow. right? Whereby, and I remember on the day, it was, um, there was, it was one of the idols, idols was happening on the yeah. day, right? And idols was top trending. And then literally, I remember at half past nine, when I searched, um, when I went into the Twitter search bar, it was the hashtag, the idols hashtag at number one. Then it was the hashtag of the Sunday night show. 
And then at number three, it was Pretoria High School for Girls. And we said, we've created a conversation which was supposed to happen in 1994 and we're not going to stop. We're only going up from here. At around 11 o'clock, that's when it started booming. It was no longer a Gauteng conversation. It became a national conversation where you had your top um, A-listers in the country tweeting, speaking, speaking about from the 80s of when um, these gates of these schools were opened up, you know, and then you had, um, and eventually it became a conversation, an African conversation where you had women in Ghana tweeting, women in Nigeria tweeting, women in Kenya tweeting, Mm -hmm. saying, how far as Africa have we gone with our decolonization um, process? And then literally at around 4 a.m., all of a sudden, it was viral. It was a global conversation where you had the Americans tweeting, the um, people in the UK talking about it. And then um, what that led to was... um, was people on Twitter started to inquire and they applied pressure on um, MEC Panyaz Ali Sufi at the time and they said to him, a bunch of young girls have just been threatened with arrest, have been threatened with arrest, have been manhandled, have gone through several racial injustices, have been treated in such an unconstitutional manner. Yeah. How are you intervening as the MEC? And then literally at like 4 a.m. he tweeted, um, I'll be at Pretoria High School for Girls on the 29th of August, Monday at um, 9 a.m. And literally, I remember I woke up that day, literally, the gates were blocked. The country had come out in support and in solidarity because this was something that we were saying, you know, that you, and I remember one parent even said, you know, it's, it's, it's painful. Like there's nothing to celebrate to say, oh my gosh, young people have stood up, you know, it's actually painful because these were things that were supposed to be unpacked in 1994 when the conversation around rebuilding and restructuring the country was taking place young people in 2016 shouldn't have to shouldn't have to bear the burden of having to become revolutionaries in a so-called democratic state and i remember people came out and um it eventually led to inquiry and an investigation with the school and um but that's a conversation for another day as to what was the outcome of the investigation and then it obviously led to a bigger national conversation and like i said we said we're only gonna rise from here we're only going up from here eventually it led to young people seeing the necessity to speak up and question their so-called freedom you know mm-hmm. oh yeah and i need to mention one thing that we also said yeah. <laughs> we also <laughs> actually said um you know one thing that when you tell young people embrace freedom, celebrates freedom, what are they truly celebrating is the real question because what we know is that nowhere, till this day, I've searched, there are no full clear minutes of what was discussed in Kodesa. So young people don't know what was negotiated for them. Yeah. You know, we don't know what was negotiated for us, yet we're expected to embrace that. Mm. How do you expect young people to embrace the unknown? Mm. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. 
and which I think is is really important, Zuleka. And then I think while I was also looking into you during the time, you also did one of the interviews in which you speak about the importance and the role of young people, in which you stated that it is important for young people to be at the forefront of socio-political spaces because these are the same spaces that will that define what will work towards developing an inclusive future. Um, and I, which left me thinking, and now you've really answered that because I, my question from that was that. Why, why, why was it so important for Zulek at the time to believe that young people should be in those spaces to develop a future they want to occupy? And I think having listened to you, I think really speaks about the importance of, of perspective. And I think building a future that is not, um, that, that is not built from one lens, right? And I think you articulated mm-hmm. that in terms of that because these are real realities and, and circumstances that a lot of young people are going through um, in South Africa. So, so I think yeah. talking, talking about young people, I want to personally, I think for me, I want us to shift the conversation and talk about systems of patriarchy. Um, this yeah. is also my way of asking you for advice because I think most <laughs> importantly for me, I grappled with this idea of what does it mean to dismantle patriarchy at a grassroots level, right? Um, and I find myself thinking, as a young male, what do you think are some actionable steps you can take towards addressing implicit behaviors of patriarchy? You know, there's so much that we can do to dismantle patriarchy because um, patriarchy, it disadvantages the majority of this country being women and so at a grassroots level like let's talk what you can do from your own personal capacity number one we know that from a young age we are socialized socialized into um young young boys are are socialized into taking on toxic masculinity you know like in a sense whereby it's made cool to be toxically masculine and um, also just with the whole thing around gender roles. Gender roles in the home affect, affect how men see women and contribute to their actions towards women because gender roles, the traditional gender roles which were set aside in the home for a girl, child or a woman seek to make you feel inferior that you are not adequate enough, you... Um, you are not at the level of a man and seek to make you feel inferior that you should be submissive, you fall under a man. And I think also just in the home that um, breaking gender roles, you know, yeah. like chores don't have a gender. Yeah. I think that's one of the biggest steps that mm-hmm. we can do. And yeah. number one, also just as um, you as a young man, men need to have these conversations in their social circles, locker room conversations, because a lot of their locker rooms conversations contribute to the over-sexualization of women in the way that they speak about women, catcalling, the typical um, conversations that sexualize a woman, make a woman um, um, talk of a woman as a sexual asset, you know? Mm. Dismantling those those, those conversations because women aren't assets for men to own. Mm. Women are not assets for men to own. Mm. And I think also calling out, calling out, if you see one of your bros or your gents talking in a in an undermining way about a woman mm. calling that out and educating the person on why this behavior is toxic and contributes to the state that we're in you know mm. so i'm um, really at a grassroots level what you can do is the conversations in your home gender roles yeah. and locker room conversations mm. amongst men and actually men need to also mobilize themselves to talk about this because i feel that um you know, men see 
women's rights as a separate agenda from human rights and see that as a responsibility for women. Women are the ones that must deal with women's rights. And for me, if we haven't achieved the basic, basic human rights for the global majority, for the global majority, because women are in the um, majority of the global population. If we haven't achieved that, then we haven't achieved human rights. And women's rights are human rights. You know, you can't separate the two. You just can't. You can't at all. And so men need to mobilize themselves to talk about, to really talk about these injustices and mobilize themselves into also fighting for women's rights because a war is being waged against women in this country. Every single day, women are dying at the hands of men and men need to really sit with themselves and mobilize themselves to have these conversations. You can't wait for a woman to curate something, curate a conversation, and then that's when you're going to chip in. Men need to take it up in their hands Sorry, I just got an um, incoming call, so it, um, it paused for a second. So I was saying that, um, you know, men need to take it up amongst themselves, to mobilize themselves, and to say that, listen, a war is being waged against women in this country, yeah. and what are we doing? Because there needs to be a sense of accountability. You can't come back and say to women, what solutions do you have? Yeah. We're not the ones raping and killing ourselves, you know? We are the oppressed in this situation. We can't say that the oppressed are the ones that must take on the responsibility to undo and to undo the threads of injustice and oppression that have been sown into society as if they were sown in by them. This is a problem created by men. And so men also need to take up that responsibility to find solutions to that problem and fight against that problem amongst themselves as well. Mm-hmm. Which, which I think is quite intriguing, um, Zuleka, because I think I had, interestingly enough, a couple of weeks ago, I had a conversation with my friend, specifically, I think, about patriarchy, but also while you're talking, got me thinking about factors such as the type of music we listen to, right? You listen to your MT and how, oh, I can't remember, but you listen to, to a lot of um, artists out there and a lot of the rhetoric, right? It's all about bitches and girls and whatever, which I think over time, I've, I found myself, seeing this that subconsciously also perpetuates into that in terms of how you view uh, a woman, how you view a woman. And which really got me thinking that I think it also starts in terms of also being conscious about, as you say, what we take in, what we are listening to, mm-hmm. the rhetoric we allow and how that forms beliefs, um, which I think is quite commendable. Um, in, in, in changing the gears once again, in, in your TED talk, Zuleka, you speak about and have got this notion of political freedom means absolutely nothing without mental emancipation. I wanted you to yep. unpack, and because in the TED Talk you unpack uh, on the idea of a born free in a post-apartheid South Africa. And I want you to further untangle or unpack what you mean by that statement. And I think also, what does it mean to be mentally emancipated? You know, um, when I said that political freedom, political emancipation means absolutely nothing without mental emancipation is that I meant that mentally there, there is an oppressor that has been planted in us. And for as long as we don't rid ourselves of that oppressor that lives within us, you know, that influences the way we think, obviously leads to microaggressions, which obviously build up to this mass system and will obviously influence your political actions because the way you think influences your political actions, right? Yeah. And so if we don't have mental emancipation, 
if we are still thinking in a colonial way, waiting to seek white approval, waiting, waiting for the white man, you know, seeing the white man as our savior, if we are still thinking like that, then it's going to influence our political decisions, which affect the, the you know, the societal emancipation of people. And so when I said that um, there can be no emancipation without mental emancipation, I was going back to um, the very, very important, very yeah. important um, philosophies of Steve Biko, where he said that um, to be mentally emancipated is to rid yourself of the oppressor that lives within you. You as a Is it another call? Sorry, I just had an incoming call. So um, I was saying that you as a black person, you've been made by society to view yourself, not just feel inferior by the systems that are put in place, but you've been made to view yourself as inferior. And what mental emancipation is, is you ridding yourself of the oppressor that has been built in you and has been planted in you and you're breaking the mental shackle to yeah. say and really question you know that i am black and there's power in my blackness mm -hmm. and also just the way you view yourself as a black person you know yeah. and yeah 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 and then i think i know i know in your ted talk you do not leave us with just the words but there's a part in which you break it down into the four the three pillars right in which one of the pillars you, you speak about the ability to recreate which i think really runs parallel to the idea of uprooting or taking out the oppressor within you um in which you post this idea of recreating african stories african societies to be specific i think walk me through also what do you think are some of the things we could do in the process of recreation in our private spaces um, and also as individuals when we are taking steps towards emancipating ourselves what does that process look like so that if there's anybody listening so that they could take some actionable steps you know when i said that i said um i said that as opposed to when we disrupt systems mm. and we want those systems torn down you know and we want to see the eradication of these exclusive these exclusive systems that seek to exclude people we need to be ready to recreate you know recreate an inclusive inclusive um agenda agenda inclusive table recreate inclusive systems and so when i said that that um it was what is the next step after after tearing down the system you know yeah. after wanting to eradicate the system the next step is to recreate mm -hmm. and that's not something that we've seen in our country in particular what yeah. we've seen in our country in particular is that that foundation that was laid down by the national party by the upholders of apartheid is still heavily embedded in our society and so you can't possibly want to build anything on Once top more. of that foundation if yeah. that foundation is still there anything you build above it will come tumbling down right yeah. you can't build anything stably inclusive inclusive on top of that which is why you see things such as um the economy being heavily segregated is because yeah. we didn't actually take it in ourselves to say listen listen for so long this country was built by the influence of the white man this yeah. country was built um built by the colonial influence you know mm. what are we as africans going to do about rebuilding a society that is reflected of our african beliefs our african tradition our ways that have been stripped off of us you know mm. what are we actually doing and so we haven't done that and so one of the biggest critical steps in doing that is to understand that 
for as long as that foundation exists, you can't possibly want to build anything yeah. inclusive. It doesn't make sense. If there's yeah. a foundation which is exclusive and seeks to exclude, you yeah. can't want to put inclusivity on top of that. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. Like it just, you know, and so what we need to do, the first step in this country is to critically analyze, analyze the education space, analyze the economy, analyze the political space. And I make mention of the political space because of the way the government functions and operates, you know, mm-hmm. the way how their operations are, you know, because one thing that I've said um, during this pandemic is that one thing that's reflected of this government is that it is still heavily exclusive, number one. It seeks to exclude young people, which is something that that the, the, the apartheid government did. I mean, Declan and them weren't young people when they came into power. <laughs> P.W. Porter wasn't young when he came into power. Yeah. Um, it's still gender, gender exclusionary. Yeah. There were no women, you know. You can't say patriarchy, white supremacy, they work hand in hand together. They coexist with one another. Capitalism as well. One thing I said, it's a disgusting grandchild of white supremacy, right? And so we need to critically understand how, what are the operations of our government, you know? Because one thing that I said during this pandemic is that what, show, what this pandemic has shown me is that over the past 26 years, how the government, how a black government has responded and treated black people is the same way that the apartheid government responded and treated us, you know? One thing that I may use as, as an example is the response to resistance. The response to resistance. What does the government do when young people resist injustice in this country? They open fire tear gas, rubber bullets, dogs, Mm. arrests, threats, intimidation. That is what the apartheid government did. It's what the apartheid government did to the class of 76. What do they do? They shot them. They shot them. Tear gas was was taken out. There were dogs. There were arrests. There were threats made. There was intimidation. That's how the government responded to Fismas Fall. Police were shooting students with rubber bullets, you know. There were arrests made, you know. When you see that all the time, you know, one thing that I've said is that there's been more arrests in this country for people who have led, women that have led, that have led protests against um, gender-based violence and rape in this country. There's been more arrests of those leaders of those protests than than there's been arrests of actual rapists actual abusers in this country Mm. the way they operate is the same way the apartheid government operated and the way they respond to black people it's the same way that the apartheid government responded to black people they seek to make black people feel inferior by giving them an inferior an inferior quality of life in a country that is theirs and that is what you see today what you see today is that the majority of this country is still stricken by poverty you know a constant cycle of poverty you know sanitation, health, education, you know, that is the same thing that the apartheid government did. And so we need to critically analyze, if we want to recreate, we critically analyze the foundation that Mm. colonialism and apartheid has left in our society. And we need to understand that we can't build anything inclusive on top of such an exclusionary and um, exclusionary foundation, right? And with that, the first step that we must take is we must critically analyze the functions of our society, the way in which the government operates and functions, the way in which the economy operates and functions. Women make up over 51% of the population, yet that isn't reflected in the economic participation. 
You don't see women. The economy of this country remains heavily segregated and it remains in the hands of white men, white men, you know? And also understand, understand, um, understand socially, socially, we remain, we live in apartheid's design. We still live in the construct of apartheid. We, there are still, the geospatial divides in this country haven't evaporated into thin air, haven't disappeared somewhat. You know, they still exist in our country, whereby a black child is subjected to waking up in an ungodly hour to catch to catch modes of public transport to get to a quality school in the suburbs. Everything, everything in the suburbs, everything which which you seek, um, where you seek quality, where you seek efficient service delivery, is in the suburbs, which are kilometers away from where black people were forced to live in, you know? Mm. And so we need to understand that that construct, sorry, that construct still exists in our society. And for us to recreate, we need to break those boundaries, those boundaries. We can't recreate. Like um, one thing that was mentioned earlier this year in the state of the, na- na- the state of the nation address was the building of a city. I find that insanely out of this world honestly how do you want to build a city yet you haven't even you haven't even addressed the geospatial divides in this country yet you're ready to build a city yeah yeah how do you want to do that like just how you know so we really need to break the boundaries because there are boundaries that have been um built and walls of separation that have been built in this country mm. and that's the first step to recreate is to break those boundaries mm. which i think is quite important especially as you said about about the foundation because one thing i really had a challenge with is you know the, this response towards the hashtag black lives met and people are like well now this thing is trending i'm like fam there are people who've been part of this conversation and been about the action uh, and for me it got me thinking that did it take the world did it take the need for a pandemic for the world to tend their attention to the idea that Black Lives Matter? And, and which really was sad at the time because I'm like, but, 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 but this thing has been here. Or like, it's not, or it's not trending now. Just because it's not on social media doesn't mean that it's not happening. Um, and, and I think while you're talking, I think it's, it's something that, that really got me thinking about uh, the foundation and how, as you, as you said earlier on, the domino effect of that and then of building something on top of that. Talking more about that, what would you say is your message to the world? Okay, so um, I don't think I have like <laughs> a singular message to the world, <laughs> like one message, you know. I have a couple, you know, like actually like I'll sum it down into three, right? Number one, firstly, with everything that's happened, with the pandemic, when saying we should wait you're waiting for us to go back to normal there is no we're no we're not going back to normal from here we're not going back to normal the only return to normal will be um is the return to normalizing racism normalizing capitalism and normalizing sexism that's the only that's the only return to normal is the return to normalizing injustice so we can't return to normal we need to go forward from here, from where we are, where we've addressed these injustices. And um, and secondly, I'm saying it again, political emancipation means absolutely nothing without mental emancipation. Yeah. And um, 
my message to the world is we haven't achieved emancipation if young people still carry the burden of having to carry the globe on their shoulders and having to um, bear the burden of having to become revolutionaries at such young ages, you know, having to abandon their tenderness, their innocence, to take on injustices. And my final message is, is that you cannot run the world without, without the majority, without the majority at the table, the majority, the global majority being young people. There is no world without young people. And you cannot exclude young people from positions of power at the decision-making table. And young people need to make up the majority of parliaments across the world yeah. because we are in the global majority. Mm -hmm. And we are the ones that are going to inherit the future. So we cannot be left out in the redesigning in decisions that affect and influence the future when the future is ours to occupy and inherit. Mm -hmm. And 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 how can our viewers and listeners stay in touch with the work that you're doing? Um, I'm very active on social media. Okay, well, um, I left Twitter a couple of years back. Um, <laughs> I'm still <laughs> deciding on my return, <laughs> but um, I'm active on IG, on Instagram. You can find me at Zuleika Patel underscore. Um, and yeah, just also like access me through emailing me zuleika.patel4 at gmail.com okay so i right. thank you so much zuleika i really think that uh, this rhetoric and what we spoke about is something that i will personally go sit down and go look at take some notes from zuleika um yeah because i i think um i really do not undermine the privilege of having to talk with someone like you you know um who is actually authentic <laughs> The work that they're doing and i really hope that um young girls and specifically young males who are listening to this uh, go in and actually uh, the, regarding the patriarchy question really tuck into how do we keep each other accountable um and then mm -hmm. really take off from this thing thank you so much zuleka thank you so much for having me it's been an absolute pleasure and good luck with everything no problem all right once again there you have it from zuleika patel herself guys go read and check about zuleika on our social media pages we'll be sharing all of her information on our social media um, um pages of the leaders podcast once again here we believe that as more and more young people go conscious of their unique purpose as they discover the hidden pearl they essentially add value to society in the only way they can please remember to follow us on our youtube instagram twitter and apple podcast Podcast at the leaders podcast and if you enjoyed this episode please do not slide into zuleika's dms but please remember to <laughs> comment and share with at least three people who you believe will find this episode next time until next time my host my name is Asante Sana.